Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. If it's inspired you and you're able to support this podcast starting at just $1 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. With this being an independent platform, I am looking for more support to be able to continue the show. So thank you so much if you're already a patron. It helps a lot and I really do appreciate it. I think pollinators are one of the great door openers for conservation because they have a direct benefit to all humans. Everyone who eats has been influenced by a pollinator. That was Lori Davies-Adams, the president and CEO of Pollinator Partnership, which is the world's largest nonprofit devoted solely to the health of all pollinators. Stay tuned as we're about to explore how our pollinators affect our food production, climate change, and our public health, the impact of industrializing beekeeping to serve our industrialized agriculture, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I think I'm an unusual environmentalist in that I I don't have a story that involves my grandfather taking me fishing or my mother helping me with plants or some sort of a connection from childhood. My childhood was in the Chicago suburbs. My parents viewed the environment as the enemy. It was too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter. Mm. And so pretty much you stayed inside and there was not much of a regard for what was going on. And somehow amidst those smoke-filled rooms of my childhood, I got this idea that there was this wondrous thing happening outside that I really wanted to be involved with. And so I do believe that when I became an adult and moved to California, the state of California welcomed me to conservation in such a remarkable way that I'm always grateful that I live here. And as a result of having children, I realized that all the backpacking experiences I had and all the things that I did to promote nature were really for their benefit. And they are my inspiration, truly my inspiration is the future that we're leaving to everyone that comes after us. To preface our conversation with an introduction, what exactly are our pollinators? What are some examples of them? And what is their role within our ecosystems? I think pollinators are one of the great door openers for conservation because they have a direct benefit to all humans. Everyone who eats has been influenced by a pollinator. And pollinators are animals. There's 200,000 species of them worldwide. So it's not just what we think about in honeybees or all the other bees or butterflies. It's 200,000 species that are diving into plants The angiosperms have set up this system in order for the plant to reproduce. It's static. It can't move from place to place. So it invites the pollinator into the flower for a floral reward. And the pollinator either moves the pollen within the flower or moves it from flower to flower 
thereby increasing the genetic diversity. So it's a, a symbiotic relationship that takes place in upwards to 90% of all flowering plants. And those are a huge, huge stock of the foods that we eat and of the plants that other animals and other species eat and the plants that hold our hillsides, that promote carbon sequestration, that really are integrated into the full fiber of our environment. Can we assume that every flowering plant that we see has a symbiotic relationship with a nearby pollinator? Like, do all flowering plants have this relationship? No. And many plants that we now use in our gardens have been bred and hybridized to eliminate pollen and nectar, which are oh. the floral rewards. So some of the species that you would see that are ornamental truly are just ornamental. Mm -hmm. And that's why we try to encourage people to, we're not against ornamental plants. We're just saying in your garden, make sure you have a space that is devoted to these native species or species that have not been hybridized so that they provide the pollen and the nectar. The pollen provides protein and amino acids and the nectar provides the carbohydrates that keep the energy for these pollinators. So no, it's not every flowering plant at all. But if you're interested in which flowering plants, we have developed sort of recipe books for the United States and Canada, whereby you just on our website, pollinator.org, you type in your zip code or your postal code in Canada, and a 30-page free brochure comes up and it tells you exactly the plants that you need to plant in your ecoregion and what pollinators they will attract. And most importantly today, we know that many of our pollinator species are going extinct or at threat of extinction. So what are the latest numbers and current status of their endangerment that we need to know? The problem is with that many species, we don't pay attention to all of them. We don't have the resources or the commitment to do that. So the ones that we do pay attention to, we're pretty clear there are significant problems. Those would be the honeybees. We have fairly good data on honeybees, although there have been movements just recently to reduce the amount of data that is collected uh, by the federal government. But we do have some data on honeybees. We also have some data on bumblebees. And there are a few other species that we pay attention to. But largely, everywhere we do look, we see problems, problems that stem largely from the loss of habitat, from pathogens, pesticides, parasites. There is a huge impact from global warming because climate change it brings these extreme weather conditions. And there really is nothing that pollinators can do to combat this lack of synchronicity when a plant emerges a pollinator needs to emerge to complement that plant. If there is then a sudden frost or a sudden heat wave, things are way out of whack. So there's not much they can do. They can move their range, but that is incremental compared to what we need to do to preserve them. You mentioned earlier that there's a lack of data and maybe 
increasingly the government is not doing as as much data collection as they used to. And on your website as well, it says that in some cases there isn't enough data to gauge a response, and this is even more worrisome. What does it mean that in some cases there isn't enough data to get a response, and why is that concerning for us? Well, I think data is something that you have to keep gathering before you know you need it. So a baseline is what we really need for most pollinators. We really should have a native bee survey in the United States, even though we have about 4,000 species of bees and telling them apart is a highly technical operation. We need to start with a baseline of what we have now. There were some surveys early on in the 20th century in Illinois, in Carbondale, and we still rely on those. And those were done, and again, this is done not across the entire United States, it was one individual who started keeping track of what he saw. And every year or every 10 years or every five years, you have to repeat this. It's an expensive process, it's complicated, but it is how we're going to know what's really happening. And I don't think we wanna wait until there are food shortages or until we find ourselves having to hand pollinate as they do in parts of China. We have to make sure that these processes are valued. And I think we have a good shot at that because food is valuable to all of us. So when we think of the really high value foods, the antioxidants, the things that bring us all our, our high nutrients and vitamins, our fruits and vegetables, these things are becoming, it's becoming clearer how important they are to our nutrition. And that's going to lead to our being, in my view, more responsible stewards of not only our own landscapes, but of the agricultural landscapes that produce our food, because we're going to make smarter decisions. And how much of our food production currently relies on the help of pollinators? And what else is at stake with, with our pollinator species being endangered? Well, in the Western diet, we say that one in every three bites of food relies on a pollinator to bring it to us. And that's a lot. But if you think of it, it's the juice you had for breakfast, or it's the tomato on your sandwich, or in many ways, it's some of the dairy that you might consume because dairy cattle consume alfalfa, which is bee pollinated. So it's about a third of our diet. But when you look at the crop species, there are about 1,200 crop species. And of those species, about a thousand do require animal pollination. And other than our food system, what else is at stake if, if our pollinators were to go extinct? If you go out for a hike and you're out in a beautiful mountain setting and you look all around you and there are wildflowers, those were there because pollinators, largely beetles and flies as well as bees, they were there to pollinate those plants. When you visit a coastal community and you see plants that have been planted to prevent erosion, those plants often are healthy because pollinators visited them. And we've just seen some studies released about the importance of trees 
in carbon sequestration and in combating climate change and global warming. If you have trees that are animal pollinated, you're going to get more carbon sequestration, but you're also going to be feeding the pollinators. With pollinators being crucial to our health, to our food supply and the health of our entire planet, their status of being at threat of extinction can also very much turn into an existential crisis for us. Compared to things like plastic pollution, which has been covered so much in the media, and rightfully so, why do you think the status of our pollinators hasn't really been talked about as much as they should be, given the weight of what their threatened status and extinction may mean for us? I, I think we are talking about it more. When we first started this, when I first started with Pollinator Partnership, it was 25 years ago. And people told us, don't talk about pollinators. You can talk about butterflies, but don't ever mention bees. And no one knows what pollination is. The fact is, it took two decades. People know about it now. People, I can get into a cab and and talk about what I do. And the cab driver says, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm worried about the bees. Mm. I think people are starting to get it. And just to repeat myself, I don't want us to wait until there are no more blueberries in our stores. I don't want us to wait until the things that we enjoy and make us healthy have evaporated. That's the extinction we want to avoid. What we want to do is work now together. And I think that's one of the biggest crises we face right now is that we've lost some of the ability to talk to people that we don't agree with. We won't make it if we don't figure out how to do it together. And the way to do it together is to pull the little part of somebody else's idea that matches up to the little part of your idea and work on it together. And that little seed can grow and grow and grow. And it's actually much more powerful than confrontation. I think pulling us together so that we're positively acting and doing things in our own interest is going to be a whole lot better than endless bickering mm. about small parts of things. We got to get the big picture in mind. And the big picture is here's an issue, pollination, that affects every person who eats. That should draw us together. Where I see a lot of our environmental issues arise is when we attempt to industrialize and commodify elements of nature in isolation. So monocultures and animal factory farming are both key examples of that. What do we need to know about industrial bee farming and how that's been used for large-scale conventional farms? Well, I think, again, we have to look at how people who are doing things now and why. And largely, it is something that developed in order to produce more food. And we did this overlay of industrialization on top of our agriculture. And it wasn't done for malice. It wasn't done, you know, to try to destroy the landscape. It was trying to feed people. And we need to connect with people who are working very hard to feed people, but might be open to new ways of doing that. And of course, because we're going to add another billion people to the planet 
in the next 10 years and we won't be adding any landscape. We need to be really smart about the decisions we make to produce food and to maintain biodiversity. They are absolutely integrated as are any kind of economic development has to be linked to environmental development and environmental development has to be linked to economic development. And let me give you an example. About 10 years ago, I was in Cameroon, which is a very poor country. It's in Western Africa. It was colonialized by the British and the French. It has mountains of problems. And right now it's on the verge of a civil war. Back then, I was out looking at butterflies in a place where it was a refuge for primates. And the butterflies were there because you can't eat them. Everything else had been pretty much wiped away. Songbirds were gone. So I was out looking at butterflies and I happened upon a woman who was eating uh, a monkey right on the road in a primate reserve. And I asked later why this was allowed to happen. And I was told that none of the rangers had been paid for two years and there was no food. Mm. And if, if your basic commodities aren't there, the environment is not your priority, survival is. So that's an extreme case, but you can project how extreme things could get when we keep adding more and more people. So we can't just say, agriculture, you gotta change everything. We gotta say, how can we work together to maintain food and increase it and maintain biodiversity and increase it? And what can we do to make that happen? And I don't think that's a pipe dream. I think that's quite doable. It's a matter of priority and conscious interaction. What you just mentioned is really important. I feel like right now in the United States, a lot of people are struggling on a day-to-day -day basis, just trying to, um, they live paycheck to paycheck and they're just trying to just trying to live and just trying to improve their own life quality. So when people aren't even able to meet their basic needs, they then can't prioritize things like climate change because they have to be okay first. I don't know what your experience has been on that, but I feel like a lot, a lot of the key issues I've been seeing in terms of why people may not be prioritizing climate change is because people may not have been taken care of first. I, I completely agree. And it's, you know, you go to a, a, an environmental meeting and you say, okay, how many, how many of you drive a hybrid car? And it's a small fraction. It, well, it may be more expensive or they may not have a car. Or you say, how many of you buy exclusively organic food? It's still going to be a small percentage because people are still trying to survive and these decisions aren't viewed as short-term gains, and they need their short-term gains as well as long-term gains. So we have to integrate the whole thing. And I think one of the ways to do it 
is for people to recognize what their real needs are. How much do you need? And scaling down and looking at, I'm going to make this my bank account. This is my priority. I'm going to invest in this, but I may have to take some money out for this. So I'm going to keep putting in things that are good conservation stewardship. Every once in a while, I have to do something that isn't, but I'm going to keep that bank account growing. And I think people, as I said, it's like dieting. It's decision after decision after decision. What am I going to do with my money, with my time, with my energy? How am I going to psychically feel like I'm connected to this planet when I could drown in bad news every day? I could look at how many horrific things are out there. How am I going to feel positive and connected? And I think it's it's not big, it's small. It's little decisions here and there. And it's also how you treat yourself and how you treat everybody you meet. More recently, I read from Scientific American that every year, more than one million bee colonies are transported all over the United States to pollinate our large-scale farms in different seasons. So bees that are raised in Florida may be brought to California for the almond trees. 50% of bees raised in Michigan are taken to Georgia and Florida in the winter and then moved back in the spring for apple and cherry trees. And they're taken to pollinate squash in Texas, citrus in Florida, cranberries in Wisconsin, and sunflowers and clover in the Dakotas and so forth. I'm wondering if this is natural to their behavior in the wild, traveling such distances, and if not, what have been the ecological and health impacts of taking them all over the place like this? Yeah, it certainly isn't something that honeybees would do on their own. Yeah, It doesn't happen in the wild, but I don't know that it even happens agriculturally in too many other countries. Mm. This migratory beekeeping is integral to the United States agriculture. And it is a critical factor right now. It's not something we can say, oh, let's let's come up with something else. We're going to have to because it's not sustainable. But for example, the almond crop in California, almonds bloom quite early. They're one of the first blooming crops. They grow, they largely, it's around Valentine's Day in February. It has so grown that there is a huge demand for honeybees to pollinate the almond crop. And every almond requires a visit from a bee in order to set seed. So it's critical. It's the number one export crop from California. It is a highly nutritious crop. It's something that people all over the world, and I think... uh, I think we're the number one producer, California's the number one producer of almonds, but Australia's right behind. So is uh, in some European countries as well. But this is a highly nutritious and valuable crop and it requires the honeybee. So there have been lots of experiments to have self-pollinating almonds, also experiments to use the blue orchard bee as something that you could refrigerate and then heat up to make sure that it's ready for the pollination in February because most native bees have not emerged by February. It's still too cold and wet. All of these are pretty artificial ways of getting this job done, but 
it's what we have in place right now. So I think people are working on making incremental change that is going to improve things. For example, when all of these bees get together in California, and then as you said, they move to Washington or Oregon, and they move over to Michigan, and then they move, you know, to blueberries up in the Northeast, and then they move down. I mean, they're mixing with one another, and they are more vulnerable. It is stressful. Beekeepers are heroes. They're the most wonderful people you'll ever meet because they care a great deal about these bees. And they work very hard to make sure they stay as healthy as can be under this circumstance. So they travel at night, they keep the bees cool, they make sure they have water. But it, no, this is not a natural process. It's just what we need right now for this food. And with a lot of food production, as you pointed out, there are unnatural things happening, but there are improvements being made for the conditions of chickens and for the conditions of sows that are giving birth. Uh, you know, there are all these things that our humanity is bringing to bear on industry. And I think I think everyone is looking forward to making sure that we can preserve what we have, but improve the way we do it. And through your leadership, you've signed agreements with over 11 federal agencies, influencing over 1.5 billion acres of U.S. land to encourage pollinator conservation. What did it take for this to happen, and what does encouraging pollinator conservation across the 1.5 billion acres look like in practice? It takes a lot of time, <laughs> and it takes building relationships over and over and maintaining relationships. Mm. And in terms of the goals that have been set out, we have many states that participate, for example, in our pollinator week each year. For the past four years, we've had every governor in the United States, all 50 governors for the past four years, sign proclamations proclaiming pollinator week in their state. That means that this was red and blue and purple. There were lots of perspectives, but everybody said, yes, we're going to pay attention to this issue. Then we follow up with letters to each of them, telling them here are 20 ways you could do that in your state with your Department of Transportation, for example, on roadsides with your Department of Agriculture, with your Department of Pesticides and Pesticide Regulation. So we work I wish we could work a little faster. More money helps on everything, <laughs> but we work very, very carefully. And in terms of the federal policies, uh, we've been working to develop the North American Pollinator Protection Campaign, or what we call NAPSI, which involves all of the federal partners and involves industry, it involves agriculture, it involves beekeepers, it involves environmental groups. And we get everybody to the table and weaving that together in a tapestry of really enlightened self-interest. Everybody is going to get something. Nobody's going to get everything. Everyone is going to be able to move a little bit forward because together we can make a big impact. And the federal government has made a commitment to add uh, 7 million acres of new habitat to work on reducing the overwintering deaths 
uh, sorry, the overwintering deaths of honeybees and increase the overwintering of the monarch butterfly. So those are very specific goals and everybody shares in developing the goal, but also in fulfilling the goal. And it's, as I said, many of the things that we do happened under Republican administrations as well as Democratic administrations. There's a real continuity to this because once the light bulb goes off and people realize we're not talking about just honey, we're, we're talking about a healthy ecosystem and a healthy agro system, they get it. Hmm. And at a smaller scale, what are some community-based success stories of their conservation and restoration you can share with us that we can use to inspire our own community efforts? Well, one of the things that we promised uh, one of the federal agencies, it's it's a quasi-federal government agency that does funding, uh, was that we would help increase the habitat for the monarch butterfly in its annual migration. And this is a unique migration. North America has an amazing resource and legacy with the monarch migration, just a, a fascinating story of nature and the, the will to survive and the will to reproduce that we really want to maintain and hand on to future generations. We don't want to have to just talk about this. We want them to experience it. So we went to this funding agency and we said that we would get six states to cooperate and we would add 4,788 acres of habitat. Uh, don't ask me where we came up with that number, but we had all of the numbers that said, this is what we we're gonna do. And we started working with everyday people. We trained people who were just like your listeners. They weren't, they weren't necessarily experts at anything in terms of naturalists or botanists. And we trained them how to collect seeds so that we could have enough seeds to plant these 4,788 acres. And the turnout was unbelievable. People mm -hmm. devoted their time, not just to the training, which was exhaustive to learn exactly what plants we were going for, how to collect them, how to not spread noxious weeds while you're collecting, how to store the seed so it's still viable. We went through this whole training that we developed. We had, we trained 300 people in these six states. And by the time we were done, we had 27,000 acres that we had enriched as a result of this program. Mm. And it was just, you know, I, I keep repeating, it's little things. A seed is a little thing, but it really changes everything. And getting people in touch with seeds, getting them outside where they interact with other people who are caring, that's enriching just in itself. But it's also this sense of, I'm actually doing something. I'm doing something that's changing the world. And next year, that plant's going to bloom and there are going to be more seeds and that's going to change the world. I think this sense of optimism is really critical because you can really sink low if you just dwell on how bad things are. I think you need that interaction with people. I think you need to be outside. There was a recent study out of England that said you need to have two hours a week minimum outside in nature in order to feel well-being. I totally believe that. 
I believe you need to connect with the earth and nothing gets you there faster than seeds. Mm. It's also really rewarding as well when we plant these seeds and we can actually start to see them sprout and grow. Exactly. You see what happened. And often we've got to do a whole lot of stuff. We've got to turn out the lights. We've got to turn down the thermostat. We've got to get out of our cars. We've got to eat better. We've got to buy smarter. But you won't see that reflected in your own life right away. You will see it if you plant for pollinators because a butterfly will come into your life. When you envision the United States and our planet even, having our human civilization exist in ways that support our diverse species of pollinators to thrive rather than endanger them, what does that picture look like? And what do you think we need most to to get there right now? I hope that I can actually picture a future that is cooperative, kind, peaceful, and in which people's needs are taken care of. I mean, you put that very well when you said, unless your needs are met, it's pretty hard to stretch your imagination to your connection to everybody else and to the future. We have to live as if what we do matters. And that can sound kind of grim and unfun. Uh, it can sound so serious that people are like, well, I'm great. I'll, I'll see you at the bar because I, I don't want to play. What we want is something that is a joyous view of our connection to each other and to the earth. And we're not there in any way, shape or form. But if you look at what just happened with 200 major corporations uh, signing an agreement with one another saying it is not enough for us to just make money. We have to be socially and environmentally responsible. They did that voluntarily. That's a sign to me that we can think beyond the moment. We can get the long view. We can say it isn't just about gain for me right now that matters. And once people start getting on that train, it's gonna, it's gonna take us far. It's really going to take us far, but we can't do it if we're going to be, uh, well, like I say, death by bickering is going to be worse than death by climate change. I mean, if all we're doing is finger pointing and blaming and saying you're bad because you did this, we have to recognize probably that person did whatever they did for a reason. So let's go forward together and work on these like the Venn diagram, the place in the middle where we can meet. Mm. And to close, what are some things that we can do as individuals to support the pollinators in each of our own bioregions and across the nation with our purchases and political actions? So uh, we obviously at Pollinator Partnership are a nonprofit. We always have our tin cup out. We welcome all donations. We mix all our money together and do great work. So supporting a pollinator advocate such as Pollinator Partnership is a great thing to do. But if you can influence the landscapes that you work in, worship in, play in, the ones where you live, if you can plant for pollinators, if you can reduce your chemical impact, if you can make sure that you reduce your carbon footprint, 
And so every time you turn off a light, you can say, here, that's for you, bees. This is, I'm reducing what I use. These are great things to do everywhere. But there's something else. We have five things that we say make up an environmentalist. And the five are that first, don't ever lose your sense of wonder. Mm. Go outside, see this remarkable world that is there nurturing you and you need to take care of it. So the sense of wonder. The second is recognize everything's connected. Everything is connected. The third is nothing is free. Not your air, not your water, not your food. You have to make sure that you take care of it. The fourth is it is up to you. It's up to you to write a check, to lift a shovel, to plant a seed, to do something. There's nobody else. It's you. And the fifth is to vote because every land decision comes from someone who was put in authority to make that decision. We never tell anybody who to vote for, but if these are issues you care about, vote for someone who cares the way you do. Before we go into our final five, I just wanted to mention real quick that if you're relatively new to Green Dreamer and would like my guidance on which episodes to listen to first among the many that are waiting for you, you can head to greendreamer.com embark to get my starter guide of our most popular episodes across a wide range of topics as well as some of my personal favorites. Again, that's greendreamer.com embark. If you've been around a while and would like to become a patron of the show to support this work, access extended content and our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. Either way, thank you so much for being here and for your huge heart and dedication. For now, moving on to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Uh, I really love the book when things fall apart heart advice for difficult times by pema children what do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired i go outside and i sit quietly and look at a flower and wait what's one thing you're working on right now for your health sugar (laughs) sugar 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 I'm a pretty healthy person and I love exercising and I love eating healthy, but I really need to look at my sugar. So that's what I'm working on. Mm. Um, What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Uh, We have really great projects like the Be Friendly Farming Project that works with every farmer to help them do things for pollinators. We don't invite people who are only perfect people to come and work on these projects. We like everybody wherever they are, and we can all move forward together. Mm. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? Unlikely alliances that are doing good things and not being afraid. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Lori's work at Pollinator Partnership, you can head to www.pollinator.org, and you can also follow her on Twitter at Pollinators and at Lori D. Adams, as well as on Instagram at Pollinator Partnership and at Lori Davies Adams. As always, you'll be able to find all of these linked in our show notes at greendreamer.com. Lori, thank you so much for this 
crucial and vital work that you do and for joining us today. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Well, thank you so much, Kamea, for inviting me. And to everyone who's listening to this, I just send you butterflies and bees. I send you great experiences going forward, making this a safe, sustainable, peaceful, and loving planet. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. To support the show, access extended content, and join our Green Dreamer network, you can head to greendreamer.com support for more information. To receive weekly solutions-driven news around ecological regeneration and intersectional sustainability, you can sign up to our free Green Dreamer Weekly Digest at greendreamer.com. And if you'd like to come say hey to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast and at Kamea Shane. Finally, as we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.